people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI Radio listener. This voice is Joey Watson's This Show is out of the box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I roll into the records and stories of one guest. Today, the epic investigation of Susan Francis. When she was a baby, Susan was privately privately adopted from a doctor's practice in Newcastle. In her 30s, Susan went on to begin a search for her biological parents. It would take her 20 years and all around Australia When she finally met them, they turned out to be nothing like she expected. It's the topic of her first book, The Love That Remains, published through our good friends Alan and Unwin. Susan, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Ah, thank you so much, Joey. I'm really happy to be here. I'm glad you are. Susan, who adopted you as a baby? Um, My mum and dad, the people that I call my mum and dad, Diana and John. and, And who were they? Um, my dad was a taxi driver, uh, and my mum was a homekeeper, a homemaker, and they originally were working class. Um, my dad had come down from Grafton, and he himself had been put out to a family to be looked after because his mother was a single mother, and she left Grafton to go to Melbourne to have him then took him back to Grafton and she worked in the pub and he was taken by the minister to live in the minister's house and he might have seen her maybe once every three or four weeks he would drop by and she would say hello and that everyone in the town knew um, that she'd had her son out of wedlock and back then I think it was 1930 in the 1930s, was, you know, a terrible scandal, especially in a small town like Grafton. Um, So he came to Newcastle, so he had no family. My mum uh, had had a baby, had had a brother, sorry, when um, a a younger brother who died from meningitis and her, her mother had suffered seriously from depression and anorexia. So they'd both grown up really without a family. Um, what, what did their background mean for the sort of childhood that you had? They were striving to do better. So my mum felt that adopting a baby was uh, something she'd been given and something that she really had to take full responsibility for. So they wanted, they were always talking about doing better for me and then when my brother came along. Um, it was all about rising because my dad was a taxi driver um, and he worked of a night time uh, learning how to do accounting and then they bought their own business and then they built a house in a better suburb. Um, what, what did that mean for the detailing of their parenting? What, what sort of parents were they to you? What were you told as a child? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I think a lot of love was withheld, funnily enough. I think it was all about duty and raising us in the right way. And my father had had an affair when I was three and my mother could not go back. Well, she, she had no money, so she was thinking about going back to work because he'd left to stay with the woman that he had the affair with. And she's thinking, well, how am I going to raise this girl, this little girl, without any money so I was going to be put out to the neighborhood and she was going to go back to work and then my father decided to come home and then she accepted him because it would mean 
more security for me than they than they got in inverted commas my brother and then um my mum never forgave my dad I don't think for as long as as long as my father lived I don't think she ever forgave him so that love word was not bandied around our house at all it was quite a sterile environment it was about duty it was about uh, working hard and rising in society was adoption done differently in the early 60s yes yeah, so and my brother and I were adopted very very differently so my father could not have children because he'd had cancer at a very young age and the the treatment that they gave him made him infertile which is why they had to adopt me and that literally when I say I was handed over I literally was handed over my natural mother had me at the hospital and then I think she released herself or or left the hospital almost straight away and the nurses looked after me for maybe two weeks and then there was a doctor in Newcastle who knew someone who knew my parents and knew that they could not have children. And literally one Saturday morning, they just went to the doctor's surgery. Just pass you on. Yeah, and just pass me over. Um, but my, my, my brother was adopted in the correct way. He was adopted in 1964, and that was through you know the hospital and social work and stuff like that. Was it broken to you that you were adopted at some stage during your, your childhood, or was yeah. it something that you had to find out? No, no, I was told. I can't even remember when I was told, but... Because I knew from a very young age, I think. I think my mum, even though she worked hard and, and she was quite she was quite stern, she did do all the right things. So she told me from a very early age that I was adopted and it always made me feel special. She would always say, we adopted you because we really wanted a baby. And so you were special. What about friends? What about other kids? Would they have known that that was something peculiar about you perhaps um so my my other best friend Liz she was adopted and I remember there was another boy in our class that was adopted it was really oh I shouldn't say common but not unusual to me that sounds amazing do you do you think that there was something that drew the two of you to each other because of that experience Liz and I yeah my best friend um no she literally lived around the corner and so we met at school uh, and would walk home together. And it was just, it's funny because we also got the same mark in the HSC. And because she died very young of cancer, I always kind of imagined that would happen to me too because there were so many coincidences in our life that mirrored each other, uh, Liz and I, my best friend, um, which is weird. But Susan, we might um, break uh, for, a fir- for our first song today. We've got some Tom Jones off the top. Tell me about this song. Why are we playing It's Not Unusual? So when I was six, we got our first television in the street and I remember everybody, all the neighbours coming around and we sat in front of the television. It was black and white. And then Tom Jones just burst onto the television set and it was this powerful beat and he was he himself had a lot of charisma and it's literally the first piece of music I can ever remember hearing and it had a profound impact on me. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone It's not unusual to have fun with anyone But when I see you hanging about with anyone 
It's not unusual to see me cry, I want to die. It's not unusual to go out at any time. But when I see you out and about, it's such a crime. If you should ever want to be loved by anyone, it's not unusual, it happens every day. No matter what you say, you'll find it happens all the time. Love will never do what you want to do. Why can't this crazy love be more? It's not unusual to be mad with anyone. It's not unusual to be sad with anyone. But if I ever find that you've changed at any time It's not unusual to find that I'm in love with you Oh, 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 A Tom Jones classic there almost needs no introduction. It's not unusual. This is Out of the Box. Um, my guest today is Susan Francis. She was adopted as a baby. It's the topic of her first book. It's her own epic journey to find her birth, her birth parents. It's called The Love That Remains. You can cop that at your local seller of literature, wherever that might be. Susan, where were you in life when you began the search for your birth parents? Gee, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I just had my first or my only baby, Jono, my son. Um, so we're in our late 20s, early 30s. Uh, late 20s. And my, my father was dying of his second bout of cancer. And I was looking after him. And it was that combination of having my own child and feeling that unbreakable bond and immense vulnerability, a sense of massive responsibility to look after Jono, like I was obsessive about things and I, I'm not an obsessive person, I don't think. And then Dad getting very sick and we moved up to look after Dad in the last three months of his life. And he said to me, because he'd never found his own father, he said to me, and because he had no relationship with his mother, he said, you've got to find out. He was the one who said, as he was dying, you've got to find out who your parents were. I really encourage you to find out who they were. And also because of Jono, because of my son. And that's really what made me think I was going to start. And that was in the early 90s. Where do you begin tracking them down? Yeah, and back then we had no Google. We had no, no nothing. So I would, I, now how did I start? It was so complicated. Uh, there was a, there was a New South Wales government um, regulation that came in that said, 92 or 93, that children who'd been adopted in the way I had been adopted could now, um, could now receive their original birth certificate. So if you were adopted in the 60s, they would give you a new birth certificate, like a fake, 
birth certificate and it would have your adopted parents name on it and nothing about your original background or where you came from or or anything and f- finally we had access to this to this document and that, I that's course, huge if you yeah, it's huge think about the impact it's not you. on so many people's lives yeah so before that there would have been almost no way whatsoever that no. document just would have been locked up somewhere yeah and you were refused access because the rights were given to the mother not to the child so if the mother said no i want no no contact with the child i want no information given out then that was it um and i could never you know i could never understand why the mother's rights were considered more important than the child's rights but they were and there was a thing called a veto which meant even if you accessed your original birth certificate there was still a veto on um meeting the mother or finding out various information now my mother had not put a veto on on anything because she'd been in america when this legislation had come through but my friend liz when she went she she received her original birth certificate i'm sorry this is really complicated but there was a veto and she actually could know no further she couldn't find anything out so in some ways you were lucky that, that your circumstances allowed you so yeah. you managed to get your hands on it what, <laughs> what 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 do you what can you get from that so what i got from that was my mother's maiden name and her um town of her where she was born the state that she was um, born in. And so what you would do is you would go to the post office and there would be all the post office books of every state of Australia and all the regions of Australia. And so you would stand at the post office for hours on end writing down the name, the surname, that all, all the surnames that, that were the same as my mother's from all around Victoria and maybe South Australia and maybe New South Wales, and you would start ringing those telephone numbers to see if anyone knew who it was you were looking for. Just cold calling. Yeah. Did you have some interesting conversations on the way? (laughs) Yeah, and people who just didn't want to know and people who would hang up on you. And um, and eventually I, I talked to a woman who said, actually, that's my sister that the woman who you're searching for is my sister. Um, she's, she's been out of the country. I don't think she will want to hear from you, but here's the number. <laughs> here's the number. What do you do with some information like that? Well, you ring. <laughs> you ring. Um, and I well, rang. Was it a pick up the phone straight away and get to it? Did you sit on it for a little while? I don't think I sat on it for very long. And when I made... because. You know, maybe I should have, but I didn't. And my my adopted mother was with me in the room when I made that phone call. And my natural mother obviously wasn't prepared for me to ring. And it was a very, very difficult phone call. How did it go? Um, I explained who I was. Um, I just remember a lot of screaming and a lot of um, a lot of bitterness, um, words like "I don't want to know who you are." I left all that behind me. Who do you think you are ringing? If you're ringing for money, you're not going to get any money because we have very good solicitors. 
Like it was the worst phone call you can ever imagine. And I just collapsed and started to cry. And I wrote about this in the book. I just remember my, my adopted mother picking up the phone and saying over and over and over again, Susan is a good girl. She's a good girl. She, she doesn't want your money. She just wants to know who she is. Where do you go from there? Is that a book closed? That was a book closed for a little while, yeah, because it was so, maybe a couple of months, it was so hurtful and so difficult. I just never imagined that she would be so hard and so cold, especially after I'd had Jono because he was the love of my life, my son. I was a single mum and he was so important to me. He was everything to me. And, gosh, now you're getting me all teary. (laughs) Um. And I just couldn't understand how she could have had that attitude. I just, I just, and I still don't understand. How did the next moment of contact go? So then my disappointment and my, there's probably a better word than disappointment, but we'll go with disappointment. My disappointment turned to fury and I wrote a letter saying to her, it's my right to know who I am. It's my right to know who my father is. It's my right to know what my medical background is. It's my right to know why you left me behind. It's my right to know what culture I originate from. And I want to know all this and you have to give it to me. And I sent that letter to her. And she wrote back with a letter. And the letter was, once again, very detached. The tone was very detached. And she said... I think your father was this person. I think he was this height. I think he was born somewhere in Victoria. I think his name was either this or this. And I remember thinking, how could she not know the facts? Because, And she said in the letter, we spent two years trailing all around Australia. He was raising money for the IRA. Some days we had a lot of money because he was gambling and doing other criminal activity. Other days we slept in the car. And I remember thinking how, if and the police were after them, she said. So how could that have happened and her not remember the details about who he was? Like that didn't make sense to me. Left in the lurch, let's go to another tune. What do we want to play for this first encounter with your mother? So we want to put, um, I think, Jim Crocher on time in a bottle why do we why do we want this song i think the tone of the song is about longing and it's about trying to get a moment of time caught and i could never seem to capture that time ever not then anyway if i could save time in a bottle First thing that I'd like to do Is to save every day Till eternity passes away Just to spend them with you If I could make days last forever If words could make wishes come true I'd save every day like a treasure and then again I would spend them with you but 
there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. I looked around enough to know that you're the one I want to go through time with. Just for wishes and dreams that had never come true. The box would be empty except for the memory of how they were answered by you. But there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. Looked around enough to know you're the one I want to go through time. Time in a bottle, Jim Crocher. This is Out of the Box. It's a show. It's a podcast. You can get us everywhere, including on Spotify. My guest today is Susan Francis. The writer was adopted and went on a decade-long quest to find her birth parents. Susan, why did you then, after everything that had happened with your mother, decide that you wanted to seek out your biological father? I didn't really believe what she'd written in the letter. Um, I couldn't understand how someone could be raising money for the IRA. I'd done a master's degree in Australian literature. Uh, I was well read. I'd never, ever heard about somebody raising money for the IRA in Australia. And he, I thought, was as important as she was in terms of where I was from and who I was. But he was one of those details that she refused to be concrete about. So I felt maybe if I talked to him, he might be a little bit more forthcoming than what she was. So she rejected you pretty outright, uh, outrightly. Did, did you have a lead to get to your old man? or No, I didn't. And that was... Um, so the, she gave me two names and she said, but he went under an alias and... She wasn't. She said it was. Um, it was this common Irish name or this common Irish name. I can't remember. And he also worked under an alias. And after she'd sent me the letter back, I I didn't do anything until two thousand and twelve because I really felt there wasn't really anything in that letter that gave me details that I could follow up. And also. I really felt like I'd been slapped in the face and I needed to sit back and maybe forget about it. I thought maybe I need to forget about this. You know, I did a a little bit of research on his name, but nothing came up, no matter what, nothing came up. So 20 years in the making almost. Yeah. What what do you do? So 2012, my mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, my adopted mother. And my best friend Liz had died from cancer. 
And of course, if she'd had a medical background, we we all kind of thought that maybe we would have known it came as a, a massive shock. Maybe if she, we'd had the medical background, maybe that wouldn't have happened. And so because my mum was dying and my best friend had just died, I thought, right, I need to do this again. I need to have another go because if I don't do it now, they will actually die. My mother and my father, my natural birth parents, will die soon as well. So that's kind of what got me going again. And I had my my new partner, Wayne, and he was always very, you know, I've got your back. We're going to do this. Don't be worried about it. And so he gave me a little bit of courage too. And so... So I did a really bad thing. I went to Queensland and I rocked up onto her doorstep, onto my natural mother's doorstep. And I thought, if I face her, she has to tell me who my father was and she has to tell me more information. Because at this stage, I still know nothing other than what she'd written on that piece of paper. Did you? Did she answer the door? She did. And... It was raining very, very heavily and actually it was her husband who answered the door and I said, I think my natural mother lives here and he called her out and I remember her coming down the hallway towards me and she like she looked so like me, just 20 years older and she was really hard looking and the way we spoke, it was pretty much... A replication of what had happened on the phone 20 years ago and she screamed at me through the rain and I remember the dog was yapping in the man's arms and she just said to me his name is and she yelled a name at me which was not that not any of the names she'd said in the original letter she yelled this name at me and she talked about football and she said of course you know who he is of course you know who he is footballers were famous and I'd never ever heard this name and then basically she slammed the door in our in our faces so you'd managed to pry out a new name yeah a new name a third name did you pursue it I did (laughs) I went straight back to the hotel room and by this time we've got google and I've got a laptop and straight away there is the footballer's name um you know who he is and what he'd done and um he was quite famous and we did a little bit more research and found out that he had actually been in her hometown in 1958 which was three years before I was born and so we decided to go to that town and find out what we could what happens when you get there this is somewhere in regional victoria this is somewhere in regional victoria so we get there and um and i give her original name and sorry i'm being really careful here i give her original name and somebody knows somebody and i go and see this lady and it's very late at night and once again i'm like a bull at the gate and knocking at this poor woman's door and she said oh come in come in yes um I remember um my mother being pregnant I remember her being pregnant to the footballer um the whole town knew she was sent away to have the baby and you know all this is making sense and I'm thinking right this is my father and 
this is the story. I finally tracked down what it was I was looking for all these years. And then the older lady said to me, I was wondering when you'd turn up because we received the letter. And, and I said to her, what letter? And she said, from you, Susan, from Melbourne. And Wayne said, Susan isn't from Melbourne, we're from New South Wales. And she said, no, no, I've got the letter, I've got the letter, the adopted daughter. And she went in to get the letter and then she brought it out and she showed it to me. And I think we all kind of sat there for about five minutes. There was absolute silence while we all tried to figure out what on earth was going on because it wasn't me she was talking about. This was another little baby girl called Susan. And finally we all worked out that my mother had had another baby girl before me, 18 months before me, and also adopted out that little baby girl. And that little baby girl was the daughter of the footballer and she had been called Susan as well. There was a second Susan. There was a second Susan. (laughs) And that is the weirdest thing in the world. That is something of fiction. It's true. Trust me, it's true. I know. And it's like the weirdest thing of the whole story, I think, in some ways, is that there was this second Susan who'd been born before me, and it was like this sliding door moment. You know, it was almost like this is what my life would have been if I'd been born first or this was half of my life in somebody else or, you know, how is she, is she half of me or, you know, we were both adopted out from the same woman, both called Susan. Completely coincidentally. Yeah, so my mother, my natural mother had called the first Susan, Susan. This is what I found out and... I'd been called Susan by my adopted mother. Did you ever meet the other Susan? I did meet the other Susan. Of course I met the other Susan. I went straight to Melbourne. And, yeah, and and that didn't go so great either. She was just, she'd been really affected, I think, more than me. Um, Like, she was a lovely person, but we were actually really different people. And that, that was, I thought that I would go down and because we were named the same and we'd been adopted by the same woman, I thought we would have a real connection, but there wasn't any connection at all. And in fact, she ended up fairly enough saying, I, I don't want to meet again. I don't really want to have anything to do with you. And I understand that because she had her own life and, um, yeah. You've got some new intelligence and with this you go to the cops eventually, to the police. What could they offer you? So it turned out that after 40 years, there was an embargo. There's a a place in Victoria, or there was a place in Victoria called the Police Association, and they could give you information about former cops after 40 years had passed. So the reason that I could never get the information before was because the 40 years hadn't passed. But my husband said to me, "Um, it's just an idea he had, why don't you try there again? Because the last time I tried was 1992. And um, I gave him the two names in the original letter. And, yeah, there he was. They said, yes, we found him. And they were so helpful. As there must have been a lot of people contacting them about adoption and being adopted. And they, they said, 
we know who he is, we're sending you the information. And, and one morning in the mail was a photograph of him, his police record, everything that kind of tied in with what my mother had said. And he left the police force in 1959 um, under a cloud. Uh, I can't remember the way they wrote it, but it was he'd done something wrong. And that aligned with the time that he'd left his wife in Melbourne to run away with my mother. So you have a name and an address now? I have a name, but not an address. They had a last known address, which had been actually ended up being in Sydney because the police force were chasing him. And someone had, um, this bit isn't in the book, but the cops had chased him to Sydney um, for something that he'd done. So the last known address was in Sydney in 1960, but that was impossible to, to follow up. So no, I had no address. So how did you manage to extract that? So um, that was all about chasing people who had the same last name as him in Melbourne. And so once again, it was phone calling people and saying, I was adopted, Um, I'm looking for anyone with this surname to see whether or not I can find my father. And I ended up speaking to a woman called Mary who was the daughter he had left behind when he left with my mother in 1959 and she had his surname and she knew even though he had not looked after her or been in contact with her since the day he'd left once she turned 21 he contacted her and said this is my address in Perth I'm living under an alias still so I wouldn't have found him if I hadn't spoken to her because he wasn't even under his original name in Perth And she gave me his phone number and his address. So here's a cliffhanger. Let's play another song. We've got James Taylor. Why does Fire and Rain come into this story now? Because there's a a line in Fire and Rain called, Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you. And I always considered this song my anthem and decided a a very long time ago that no one was going to put an end to me because of their plans. I'm in charge of who I am. I'm in charge of my own destiny. My adopted father would always say, don't be a sheep, don't be a sheep. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you. I walked out this morning And I wrote down this song I just can't remember who to send it to I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again Won't you look down upon me Jesus, you gotta help me make a stand You just got to see me through another day My body's aching and my time is at hand 
Here, FBI Radio, an out-of-the-box listener. Fire and Rain, James Taylor there, uh, a 60s classic. This uh, is out-of-the-box, as I mentioned. My guest, Susan uh, Francis, she's a writer, and her book is about her quest to find her birth parents. Susan, what was the catalyst for you to finally chase your dad? This is only a couple of years ago now. What brought you to that stage? So my husband and I wanted to go to Spain to live and he was always talking about the importance of now, of not looking back, looking forward. And he said to me, I'm happy to drive across to Western Australia. He loved driving. He had a massive crewman ute. He said, I'll drive you across. We can meet him. We can put all this behind us and we can go to Spain and we won't have to the past hanging over us ahead again so because he said that to me I thought well let's do it so did you tell your birth dad that you were coming um yes I had a phone call with him and it was very sharp and very quick and he like he did when we arrived in Perth It was a funny middle line that he was holding. It was half, yes, I could be your father, and half, I'm not going to admit that I am your father. But I have photographs of us together, and there's no doubt that he's my father. And my half-sister, Mary, in Melbourne, who gave me his name, strongly believes that he's my father, The police records say he was the man that was with my mother in Newcastle when I was born. And I, when when we went to Perth and we met in the pub and he said to me, yes, I could be your father. I knew she was pregnant, my mother, 
and I told her to get it seen to and I thought she'd had an abortion and so I knew he was a liar because they were together there was no one else and obviously she was pregnant with me and obviously she went and had me so he must have known that he'd had a child but still when you meet him at this pub in Perth he denies it he didn't deny it but he didn't agree to it either he he's he was saying things like you could be my daughter yes you could be my daughter um yes i ha- um i was with her in may in newcastle at that time yes we were together yes i got her pregnant but i thought she'd had an abortion so it was never like i can't say to you right now that he said i am your father he wasn't a- aggressive like your mother was no he wasn't but he was really sleazy he had his hand on my knee he was saying things about um how attractive he thought he that i was and how what a lucky wayne what a lucky man wayne was to have me yeah um like it felt so weird it it felt like my own father was hitting on me you know that's the end of a 20-year journey, more even, where did that leave you? Was there any closure now that you'd met both your birth mother and father? It's It's a really good question. There was closure in terms of knowing, knowing who I was and knowing what the story was. But there was still a sense of meaninglessness and is that all there is? And I can't believe I came from that. Um, so even though it finished a lot of the questions, I suppose there was still emptiness inside, a little bit of emptiness. What do we want to play now for meeting so Your we want to play. <laughs> we want to play Lido Shuffle by Boskags. <laughs> change of tone. <laughs> <laughs> Big change because I feel like he was a man who was um, always dancing around the truth and kind of putting a good time before anything else. Just long enough to grab a 
gags there on Out of the Box. This podcast, my guest, Susan Francis. Her uh, uh, book is The Love That Remains. It's about her quest to uh, find uh, her birth parents. Susan, do you think that being adopted beyond this story has impacted the way that you relate to the world? Absolutely. How how so? You can't help but feel subconsciously or, or consciously that if your mother abandons you and doesn't want you, that is anyone else ever really going to love you and ever really going to accept you unconditionally for who you are? And it's they've done a lot of studies on adopted children and um, it's not just me that's always felt that. Everyone who's been adopted feels that, that um, if you were left behind once, then the fear is that you will always be left behind again and again and again. That's the fear and that's the fear that you fight against. And so I was married four times in the end and the first three men I married I left and I believe I left because I was afraid that they would leave me so you jump on it and you do it first do you think there's ways to get around that adoption is kind of one of those things that's that is a part of society it's a part of life but it's done very differently now so now it's it's really hard. I was actually asked after conversations to be a spokesperson for an adoption agency and I had to say no because I think in some ways adoption can be a really good thing and in some ways it can be a really bad thing. So I can't wholeheartedly endorse adoption. I know as a school teacher there were definitely times when I felt that children would be better off with another family or a different family. But I also know how difficult it is being separated from your birth family and how out of place you feel. Your whole life you feel out of place and you feel like you don't belong and you feel that no one really gets you. So so the question was, do I think there's ways of getting around it? I think these days they do adoption much better and children generally know who their parents are and where they came from. And that's a big part of it. Yeah, I think it is. Even if you can, even if you can understand, see if you can see them, and and generally these days adoption, people are, they have some contact with the people who gave them up, so at least you know where you came from. Like I always, it's a very difficult thing to explain, but I always imagine myself, and it goes back to that Tom Jones song. It's really funny. I only realised that right now. It was like the television had been switched on and there I was on the screen, but there's nothing behind the television. You know, there's just a lead plugged into the wall. So suddenly I was there, but from where? Susan, this has been epic. What can we play to finish up this episode of Out of the Box? I think Valerie (laughs) by Amy Winehouse Um, because that is a song that just... um, she, you know, she's a war, ho- a war horse. She just goes for it, and it always makes me feel very strong when I listen to her. Well, this week, as every week, an enormous thanks to my producers Rebecca Merrick and Bree Jones. 
much glory to them, especially Brie, who did a lot of work on this particular episode. Susan Francis, thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box. Thank you. You asked some really hard questions. podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.